Well, the title of tonight's message is Learning Humility Through Discipline. Learning Humility Through Discipline. And as I thought about discipline, discipline ultimately is brought about by a need for correction. Correction is brought about by getting off track. And there's a lot of different ways you could talk about that, but you could describe it as sin or failure, but really it's referring to a mindset where we're not thinking straight. We're not having the right mentality or the right attitude. And as we're focused on self or living for self or being influenced by other things besides God working in our lives, God directing in our lives, God empowering our lives, we live life in a way that is, from a spiritual perspective, described by God as being sinful or being, I guess, a a failure to thrive the way he intended. But as you think about what is causing that failure in your life, and ultimately, as a Christian, quite possibly your greatest enemy, when it comes to those failures or that improper thinking, it's pride. It's pride. And pride is thinking more highly of oneself than is reasonable or just. It, It stems from an improper love for oneself, ultimately. Pride is you're thinking about, well, why is pride such a problem? Well, because I'm now focused on myself. I'm now loving myself in an, in an unhealthy way. As you think about what else is it, it's an inordinate or disproportionate self-glorification where you're focused on lifting yourself up. When you think about glorification, it's about praising, exalting, extolling, magnifying, making something bigger, having it have a place of honor. And so when we're doing that, put the word self in front of that. Now I'm trying to honor myself. I'm trying to praise myself. I'm trying to lift myself up. And so what does pride bring about? It brings about self-glorification. A a too high view of oneself, a too high sense of even self-esteem. And it arises out of ultimately a focus on self or self-centeredness. And it arises also from independent-mindedness where you fall into a place where your perspective is, I can trust myself. I don't need anyone else. I've got this figured out. But it ultimately always comes back to having too great a focus on self, thinking too highly of oneself. And it's not to be confused. As you think about pride, it's not to be confused with a general sense of self-respect or even satisfaction about accomplishing something, a task gets accomplished. There's a sense of accomplishment that comes with that. That in and of itself isn't pride. It's about taking the glory, about having the glory, having the focus, having the emphasis in our thinking. Now, the, the biggest problem with that other than that the Bible says there's only one person who should be focused on or lifted up or exalted, and it's not self, it's God himself. Other than that, which is enough of a problem, I guess, by itself, the problem with elevating self is that God is effectively removed from his proper place of preeminence. So I can't be giving him the preeminence and at the same time giving myself the preeminence. I can't be glorifying myself at the same time I'm living to lift him up. And so that's ultimately a problem. And you think about as I have this sense where I've made myself the focus of worship, I'm worshiping self, I'm elevating self, I'm praising self, I'm depending on self, self being the problem in this equation, of course. But while I'm doing that, of course, and I'm operating independently now, God is now excluded from that equation. I'm no longer depending on him 
if I'm focused on myself, resting myself, trusting in myself, leaning on myself, worshiping myself, it's no longer a posture or a mentality where I am depending on the Lord. And that independence, doing it my way, focused on self, it leads to or brings about or results in all kinds of different sin and failure in my life. Of all different forms, it manifests itself in all different kinds of ways, but ultimately it stems from I had too high of a view of myself, started to focus on myself, have myself be in a place of preeminence that was improper from God's perspective, operate apart from God, and then start to do whatever I see fit as led and directed by my flesh, which is the one that's always the, the driving force behind a me-first mentality. It's always my flesh. The world is influencing or ultimately promoting that mindset as well. You do you, or if it makes you happy, or if it's something that you want, how can it be bad? That kind of mentality is promoted by the world, but it doesn't need to be promoted much because my flesh is already geared toward that kind of thinking. Now, as I experience this sin and failure again of all different forms, all different kinds in my life, the loving Father, the Heavenly Father, is seeing that. And as a loving Father, God responds to flawed thinking with a desire to correct my thinking or whoever we're talking about here in this example. Whenever our thinking is off and we're doing our own thing, we're operating apart from God. The Father, in love, wants to correct that thinking. And that process of correction, it involves discipline, or another word, a fancier word, I guess, for it theologically is chastening. Discipline or chastening. Now, the primary objective of discipline is changed thinking. That's what God is after. God desires to replace that attitude of pride with its counterpart or its opposite, which is an attitude of humility. It's when I have an attitude of humility then that I can have a posture of dependence and a mentality that is depending on, focus on, focusing on, trusting God to undertake in my life and direct in my life the way my flesh never would. So you think about this, these corollary things, these opposites of one another, pride and humility. God wants to take the thing that's the ultimately my greatest enemy, ultimately the thing that is getting me off track to begin with, always can be sourced right back to pride and he wants to replace that with the opposite, which is humility, which is a posture that he can use. Now, as you think about that, in Psalm 39, you're like, this a little bit long-winded. How does this involve learning humility through discipline? Well, in Psalm 39, we're gonna see that through chastening or discipline, David recognizes the need for a posture of humility in his own life and a proper focus and dependence on God. And so it's something that isn't, because it's poetic, it isn't as clear as it could be, but as maybe your, the Bible that you're looking at here, perhaps has subheadings. Again, I bring these up. I don't bring them up so that we'll overly rely on them, but I bring them up because often we purchase study Bibles with the idea that they could give us some ideas. Well, this one comes from a a verse in our section that we'll look at tonight, our psalm that we'll look at tonight, but it's called The Frailty of Man. That's actually the title in my study Bible that I'm looking at here. And so when you're thinking about that, ultimately we're going to connect some dots here. David isn't as clear about it as he could be, but the takeaway is that as I'm made aware of and reminded of my frailty, it keeps me what? It reminds me to be humble. And as I learn to have that humility or I have that posture of humility, that's what God's after. Then David, having 
learned humility again or relearned or been reminded to have that humility in his life, he could rightfully be crying out to the Lord saying, Lord, would you put an end to this chastening so that I can be restored back to a place of joy, a place of happiness with you because this chastening has really gotten me down. I, I can't take any more of it. So if I'm summarizing the whole psalm, there you have it right there. Have that be your takeaway that God wants to bring us to a place through chastening where we'll learn humility and then we can ultimately have the desired objective that God always has, which is restoration in our lives. Let's start because it's a relatively short psalm. Let's just read through it from start to finish so that we have sort of that flow of thought and that overall context. Psalm 39, turn there if you haven't already. We start with verse one, I said, I will guard my ways lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are before me. I was mute with silence. I held my peace even from good and my sorrow was stirred up. My heart was hot within me while I was musing, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days. With what objective in mind here? Here's the key to this whole thing. That I may know how frail I am. Verse five, indeed, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my age is nothing before you. Certainly, every man at his best state is but vapor. We many verses in the Bible that talk about that the time that man has on earth is like a vapor that's here for a moment and then vanishes quickly away. Man's time on earth is fleeting. Verse six, surely every man walks about like a shadow. Surely they busy themselves in vain. He heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the reproach of the foolish. I was mute. I did not open my mouth because it was you who did it. Remove your plague from me. I am consumed by the blow of your hand. When with rebukes you correct man for iniquity, you make his beauty melt away like a moth. Surely every man is vapor. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner as all my fathers were. Remove your gaze from me that I may regain strength before I go away and am no more. So we'll break this down a little bit more here tonight, but there's 13 verses of this psalm. And like I said, you know, psalms, this, even this series on insights and psalms has been a little bit challenging at times, of course, because we're dealing with poetry. And when things are written through symbolism, they're written figuratively, they're, they're written by way of trying to be descriptive or use other things to make other points that they're not, it's, poetry is by definition a little bit on the vague side as we're trying to use creativity to discuss and describe and uh, acknowledge and explain things instead of just saying it plainly. If it was said plainly, it wouldn't be poetry to some extent. And so that's one of the things that we're up against. We have to kind of read between the lines to some extent to figure out what is it that David is trying to communicate here. But this first section, these first few verses sort of stand for this idea that David struggled with responding properly to God's discipline. 
David struggled with responding properly to God's discipline. And let's look at this. He, he had this determination or this mentality where he determined to just take the reproach of God, the divine chastening, the divine, even divine suffering in a sense. He, just, he determined to take that silently, just take it as of the Lord because he knew that he was in error, that he was, he, he was operating, had operated sinfully. And so then he determined to not make it worse is how I take these first three verses. Let's read them again. I said I will guard my ways lest I sin with my tongue. Now, the whole section is about him dealing with the consequences or the discipline, the divine chastening associated with his sin. So now he says, I don't want to double down on that by continuing to run my mouth in the face of this chastening that I'm receiving. I want to sort of bear it silently. I want to bear it silently, meaning I'm not going to respond to both either evil or good that's going taking place in my life because I see it as being directed by the sovereign hand of God. Now, is there any way to know that for sure? Even in your own life, is there any way 100% to know that the things that you're dealing with, the things that you're facing, that God is taking an active role in bringing them about? Now you can say God being sovereign, he's in control of everything. He divinely or sovereignly permits things to happen, but does he orchestrate or initiate everything that happens? And my perspective would be no. And so then you're left with sort of, I think any person has to perceive or reach a conclusion about what's happening in their life, but that's not really the point. The point is that's how David saw it. He saw what he was ha facing and what was happening in his life. He associated it with divine chastening. And so he determined to keep his mouth shut. So he says, lest I sin with my tongue, I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle. This is even while the wicked are before me. I was mute with silence. I held my peace even from good. I'm going to say nothing. And my sorrow was stirred up. But was it easy for him to do that? No, look at verse 3. My heart was hot within me. I'm trying to be silent or bear this silently. But I was musing. And the fire was burning inside of me while that was occurring. So then I finally spoke with my tongue. And who did he address? He addressed the Lord. We'll get to that in a second. So this is a continuation of the thought from the previous psalm about the impacts of sin and chastening. The impacts of sin and chastening. And we looked at that anguish over sin, this having a concern about sin, not getting to a place where we were ambivalent about sin or that we were jaded to the real danger and the real harm associated with sin, that we no longer even had any concern about it, and talking about how that's a dangerous place to get to, and how God wants us to have a concern about these things in our lives, not with the mentality of necessarily beating ourselves up about it, or promoting a, a mindset of shame and guilt as we're dealing with, with sin in our lives, but from a purpose of realizing that it's very detrimental in our lives and the lives of others as there's great harm associated with it, not the least of which is missed opportunities to enjoy intimate fellowship with God in those moments and to have our lives count or be used in light of eternity to redeem that time. We can't be doing that while at the same time we have, we're rebelling against God and doing our own things. And so we don't want to get to a place of complacency about sin. And that's what he was talking about in Psalm 38, and now this is sort of a continuation of that thought. Now David, he resolves, again as I've mentioned, to say nothing about his plight, and the reason again is he saw the opposition he faced as directed by the Lord in response to sin in his life. Now that's going to be communicated quite clearly, and we already read through it in verses 7 through 11. 
And as you're thinking about that side of it, this idea of, of having divine discipline, that he was wanting to respond properly to God's discipline or chastening in his life. He was wanting to bear it again in silence, not complaining about something that God, that was brought about ultimately by failure in his own life. He could say, I can take that as from the Lord because I'm the one who's brought this about. And God, as my loving father, intends this for my good. Now, did David realize that? I believe he did. I, I believe he saw the positive side of the loving chastening of a heavenly father, and we'll touch on that in a minute. Now, when you think about God's discipline of his children, it's intended to benefit them. It has a purpose. Turn, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. So even though David was struggling with responding properly to God's discipline, God's discipline is not intended to harm us. It's intended to benefit us. It has a purpose. Hebrews 12, 10. So we can back up to verse 9 because there's a, well, let's go all the way back to verse 7. The whole section is about the Father's chastening, the Heavenly Father's chastening, but it's used in contrast, not contrast, but it's compared to what they would have been familiar with, most people would have been familiar with, which is a Father's, an earthly Father's chastening. Verse 7, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons, meaning for what son is there whom a father does not chasten? I guess it explains it right there. Meaning, if, if you have a father, a father is tasked with training. And there's no way to train or correct without chastening. Chastening is, first and foremost, it's correction. So, but if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, all children have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Meaning, if you don't have any chastening, it's because you're not a son. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us. And we paid them respect. What was the result? We, we learned to take instruction from them because hopefully we saw that they had our best interests in mind. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? Meaning, will not it benefit us quite even better if our divine or heavenly father is, is chastening us? Won't the outcome be even more useful? Verse 10, for they indeed, this is talking about human fathers, for a few days they chastened us as seemed best to them meaning they were not perfect, but the heavenly father is. So they chastened us for a while, a few days, as seemed best to them, but he, meaning God, capital H there, but he for our profit, meaning we don't always know what the human father's motives were. We can't always assume that they were for our benefit, though they should be. But the heavenly father, we can always take his chastening knowing it's for our good. Now you see that with this that, that's the purpose of the chastening. It's for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness, that we could live a right life, a just life, a holy set-apart life. That's the purpose of chastening. So if we come back to this struggle that David is having, I believe he recognizes that, one, he deserves God's chastening, but secondarily, that God intends it to be of his benefit. So his mentality from the onset has been, I'm going to endure this knowing it's for my good, and I'm going to endure it without compounding that rebellious spirit or compounding the problem by continuing to sin with the things that I'll say in response to what God is doing 
in my life. He didn't want to compound the problem by responding in the wrong way, so he remained silent. Now you see that with this phrase I said, I will guard my ways, lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle, even while the wicked are before you. Now, as I mentioned, there's obvious frustration, frustration being communicated here. You see, God never promised that chastening would be pleasant. Never promised that. But he did promise that it would be beneficial to us. Now, eventually, verse 3 there, David says, My heart was hot within me. The fire burned. You see, there is an aspect to chastening that is not pleasant in the moment. But then eventually, he could, when he could endure silently no longer, he cries out, but he doesn't cry out to the unjust or the just, the evil, the wicked or the good in his life. He cries out to the Lord. Then I spoke with my tongue. And we're going to see who he addresses that conversation to in verse 4. So now the second section here is that David asks the Lord to remind him of his own human frailty. He asks the Lord to do this. We don't often have that posture where we're saying, Lord, remind me of how small I really am. Help me to be humble. Give me that humility. Now there's a little bit of reading between the lines. You'll see that here. But he starts with, I'm struggling to respond to this proper, properly to this divine chastening or discipline in my life, which is brought about by my own thinking, my own choices, and it's good for me, and I see the value in it, though again, we're, we're pulling that from the text. Now we have, David is asking the Lord to remind him of his own human frailty. Let's read verses four through six. Lord, what a, what a prayer request here. Meditate on this for the remainder of the week. Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days. Now, he knows already, David isn't unaware of the frailty of man. He just wants to be reminded of it again. So he says that, there's identifying again the purpose of the prayer request, that I may know how frail I am. He's not actually saying, Lord, tell me how many days I have left to live. He's saying, make me mindful of how small and how short my time on earth even is so that you can remind me that I have nothing to be proud about. I have nothing to be big-headed about. Remind me of just how small I really am is how I take this. Remind me of my frailty. I love the way he says that. Then he says, indeed, you have made my days as handbreadth, meaning I know that I don't have even much time on earth to think highly of myself or anything I could accomplish because my life is just a vapor. It's here and then it's gone. So he goes on to say, in my age is nothing before you. There's nothing about me that measures up in any way to your eternal existence, God. I'm a small piece of this whole thing. And so that's sort of the thing. But he's saying, remind me of that. Make me know that. That's sort of the idea here. My age is nothing before you. Certainly, every man, now not just me, but every man at his best state is but a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow is the idea. So surely every man walks about like a shadow, meaning there's no real substance to that existence of any eternal importance. Surely they busy themselves in vain, meaning what are they really hoping to accomplish on a temporal, earthly sense? What kind of an impact will they really even have? They heap up riches, but they can't even say with any certainty who will gather them in, who will benefit from them is the idea. Man doesn't even know that. 
They chase their tail in a sense, trying to make something of themselves, busy themselves, but it's all vanity ultimately because even the riches or the things that they are successful in accumulating, they have no even sense of confidence again that they'll even be the ones who benefit from that. Now think about that really. Isn't it true that we sometimes forget how inconsequential a lot of the things that we make so important, we, we make such a focus in our lives really are? Isn't it, isn't it true that we have a tendency commonly to fixate on the things that are passing away, the temporal realm? Isn't it true that the encouragement of Scripture over and over and over again is to have a heavenly mindset, have an eternal perspective, see your citizenship ultimately as in heaven because your time here on earth is fleeting. And if my time here on earth is fleeting, then my opportunity to serve the Lord, to magnify Him is small. It's a small window of time to accomplish anything with lasting and eternal value. And I ought to be thoughtful about that. I ought to be reminded of that. And when I'm doing my own thing, when I'm operating in pride and sin, transgressions, trespasses, when that's what's occurring, the underlying issue isn't the sin and trespasses. The underlying issue is what is bringing that about? Well, pride, self-focus, thinking more highly of myself than I ought to, which means I'm not accomplishing the very purpose that I was created for, which was to enjoy the Lord and to worship Him forever. We've talked about that recently. Magnify Him, lift Him up. Now, if I, I, if I get this sense that that mission is important and it, it's the only thing that will have redeeming value in my life, I might have a mindset like David here, Lord, remind me how short my time is. With, with what objective in mind? That as, as you can bring about some humility in my thinking, then I could actually use that finite, fleeting portion of time that you've gifted me with in a way that would matter in a way that would have lasting or eternal value. That's sort of the takeaway here. That would, I, I want that to be the benefit, Lord, of you bringing about this process of correction in my life. Now you're like, man, that's, that's a lot to pull out of that. Maybe. Maybe, but I think that is the, the strong focus of what, da, what David is looking at, what he's hoping to have come out of his thinking as a result of this chastening that he's enduring. So, Lord, remind me of my own human frailty. When he finally cries out to the Lord, he shows great self-awareness. He essentially asks the Lord to give him a proper perspective. Now, David doesn't address it directly, but his failure inevitably originated from pride. So then he asks for the opposite. Make me to know. Make me to know what? My own, give me humility, my own frailty. Make me to know that so I could become humble. And when you look at that phrase in verse four, make me to know, it indicates a tendency to, to either forget or be unaware of something. Make me to know this. Now in your case, when you came here tonight, did you need to, did you need to be reminded that life is fleeting, that our time here is a, is a vapor, that we have a tendency to waste it if we're not thoughtful or careful? Maybe. I would submit that looking around at your faces, none of you are hearing that for the first time. So it's not 
make aware or make to know in the sense that I never knew about this. Isn't it more just what the Bible does over and over again, more to serve as a reminder of something that we do know, we have been taught, we just have a consistent tendency to forget? And that's often, I think, more the case when you're talking to people who have been exposed to God's word for a meaningful period of time. It's no surprise to them that they have a short window of time to serve the Lord on planet Earth. They have all of eternity to do that, but that's not what the focus is of the time that we have here. And in a sense, I don't want to say that will be done against our will, but we'll really have no choice in the matter then. Our choice was whether to serve the Lord or not here. When we're glorified and sin is taken out of the equation altogether, there's not going to be the alternative anymore. There's not going to be the alternative to not glorify the Lord or not live life in sinless perfection. It's the only way there is going to be to live. But here on earth, there's an opportunity to choose this or not choose this. And I think that's why the reminder is so valuable. The underlying focus, again, relates to remaining or becoming humble. The idea here is, remind me that I have nothing in myself to find confidence in. Now, that's why David had erred to begin with. That's why he was being disciplined to begin with, because that's the underlying cause of all sin in our lives. So what he's really saying here when he says, Lord, make me to know my end, remind me that I have nothing in myself to find confidence in, make me small again. Because when we have that small-mindedness, then what can God do? Well, God can lift that up. He humbles the proud and he lifts up the, those that have humility. And we think about how God resists those that are operating independently from him. That's why it says the, the thing that God hates more than anything else is pride. Pride. It's this idea that I don't need God. That's why he hates it so much because it excludes him. It refuses to acknowledge our need for him. So this is communicated, you're saying, remind me that I have nothing to find in myself to find confidence. And it's communicated by emphasizing, again, the brevity of life and also the lack of certainty in life, the lack of control in life. That's all communicated with these phrases. With these phrases. My age is as nothing before you. Inconsequential, brief, short, lacks certainty. Make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days. He heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. There's no certainty from the human confidence, human perspective. There's, there's no control in this process. You have choices to make, but there's, you don't have control of outcomes in your life. Think about all the things that you want to control. How well is that going? Right? Think about the things that are, are, have aggravated you or caused you the greatest amount of hurt or pain in your life this last calendar year. In many of those instances, isn't it true that you wished or wanted to have the ability or the control to change those outcomes, to fix those problems, to take away that hurt, to change other people, to change circumstances? Did you have any ability to really do that? The answer is most times not. Sometimes you can influence change. Sometimes you can promote or be used even by the Lord in a spiritual sense. 
uh, to be a conduit for him to speak into maybe another person's life so that they would have a change of thinking and then it maybe would change the circumstance, but you have really no control. That's why as Christians, we're, we're taught repeatedly that we have to learn to get to a place where instead of trying to be in control, we'll give things over to the one who is in control. Isn't that the ultimate thing that we're struggling with? Is we want to be in control instead of trusting God, the one who is in control. You know, we want to fix things instead of giving it to the one who can fix things. You know, I often try to remind myself, not often enough, but I often try to remind myself, you know, Gus, you have a tendency to want to be a fix-it man. And I've, I've said this before, but God doesn't need fix-it men. God needs faithful men, men who are willing to trust him, women who are willing to trust him. He, is in then, he then is in the business of fixing things, restoring things, healing things, bringing beauty from ashes. He's in the process of renewal and regeneration. He's in the process of restoration, in the business, I should say. He's in the business of that. He's the one who's capable. You're not. So what does that mentality even come back to? The same thing we've been talking about, pride. That's the number one problem. Trace, trace every root problem comes right back to that. So we don't want to get too far off track here, but he heaps up ridges, riches and does not know who will gather them. Being, being reminded of our complete lack of control, it's needed. David shows great perceptiveness related to this, especially with this phrase, that I may know how frail I am. What is he really saying? That I may know that I'm not the one in control. Being reminded of our complete lack of control is necessary. That's what David's getting at. There's real perceptiveness there again. Show me this so that this could be the outcome. I may know how frail I am. See, David seems to recognize the need for humility in the face of what he perceives to be prolonged divine chastening. He seems to recognize that. That's how I take those verses. Now, as you think about an application in our own lives, the question is, that is what every believer needs when he or she gets turned around. When you get turned around, may this be your prayer. Lord, show me. Remind me that I have nothing in myself to find confidence in. Remind me that I am not in control. Remind me that I need humility in my life, not self-dependence, independence. I don't need pride. I don't need self. I need you. Remind me of that. Would we pray for that? Would you pray something like, Lord, make me know, remind me, make me aware Make me to know how frail I am so that I can have that posture again of dependence on you. So we turn here. David now refocuses on the Lord. I say refocuses because when we're not thinking straight, we're not focused on the right thing. So he refocuses on the Lord and he asks for deliverance. Let's pick up in verse 7. And now, Lord, what do I wait for? What do I wait for? He just got done talking about how this has been a prolonged divine chastening, or at least his perception in his life. He's talked about how he's wanted to learn something from that or be reminded of just how small he is, his human frailty, how he's not the one in control and how he needs a posture and an attitude of humility. But now he says, I'm going to look back to you. I'm going I'm to keep my focus on you. 
and I'm at the same time going to ask for deliverance. Verse 7. And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. My hope for what? My hope for deliverance. Verse 8. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the reproach of the foolish, which has been, in his estimation, the divine discipline or part of the divine discipline that he's been dealing with. I was mute. I did not open my mouth because it was you who did it. Meaning, I perceived that what I was going through in my life was brought about by you, Lord. That's why we see that this, this psalm is a response to this chastening in his life. And he's asking for, or he's being reminded that I need to have a humble attitude and a humble response. And when that's true, I then can ask the Lord, would you restore me? And we'll get to that in a bit. But we see this, remove your plague from me. I was consumed, oh, because it was you who did it, verse 10, remove your plague from me. I was consumed or am consumed by the blow of your hand. I feel the chastening, Lord. What a way to sort of personify that divine chastening. Verse 11, when with rebukes you correct man for iniquity, you make his beauty melt away like a moth. It has a, it has a very negative impact on him. It's something that, it's a, again, a poetic way to describe this, but as you're correcting me, it's not something that is, it's like I'm melting away while that's happening. So surely every man is a vapor, and as that's happening, I'm reminded again of how small I am. So as we look at this section, David is, again, refocusing on the Lord and asking for deliverance. Now you think about humility, which we've been talking about. It causes the believer to redirect his gaze. He now says, I wait on you. After being reminded of his frailty, the conclusion or the takeaway is, I now focus on you. I wait on you. My hope is in you. We see those in verse 7. I wait for, so it's implied here that I wait for you because he's saying, Who, what do I wait for? And then the answer is, my hope is in you. So I wait for you and my hope is in you. My confidence comes from redirecting my gaze to you, not from focusing on myself anymore. When he's focused on himself, all that he's seeing or being reminded of is his failure. But when focusing on the Lord and how God can work in our life, then we could have hope. There'd never be any hope in a time of failure by meditating on how inadequate we are. There'd never be any hope or encouragement by focusing on how insufficient we are or, or how, we, how likely or how easy it is for us to turn our gaze the wrong place or to kind of go off the rails, I suppose, is another way to say the same thing. That would never give us encouragement. The hope and the confidence comes from getting our eyes back on the Lord. So David, he had become frustrated and was fixating on his suffering. But he's asking the Lord to correct his thinking and to make him humble or small. That's what he had asked the Lord to do. We saw that in verses four through six. But now he's now gonna ask for deliverance or an end to God's correction. So he had become frustrated. He was fixated on his suffering. He asked the Lord to correct his thinking, make him humble or small. And now he asked for deliverance or an end to God's correction. Verse eight, we see, deliver me from all my transgressions. Remove your plague from me, we see in verse 10, the first part of that verse. So there's again this clear connection between what David is going through and what he, does, what he views to be or perceives to be just or deserved divine chastening. 
there's a clear connection being made. Now, David, he honestly communicates that the, the discipline that he's facing is more than he can bear. He, he, sh- he reveals his soul, in a sense, to God. He has this very personal way of talking to God. Hopefully, we can learn from his example, but he just lays it bare, so to, so to speak. He opens up to the Lord, and he says, this is too much. And how does he describe it? It's very very descriptive when he says, I am consumed by the blow of your hand. I am consumed by the blow of your hand. Is, does God promise that chastening or discipline is going to be easy or pleasant? The answer is no. The answer is absolutely no. The answer is it never will be pleasant. It will be productive. You're picking the wrong P word. It won't be pleasant, but it'll be productive in a spiritual in a spiritual sense. See, the chastening of the Lord is painful. We see that in verse 11 with this other poetic description. When with rebukes you correct man for iniquity, now listen to this description, you make his beauty melt away like a moth. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 12. We ended off in verse 10. Some of you wondered why we didn't keep reading. Well, because we weren't to that part yet. Hebrews chapter 12. Similar concept here as we continue this thought about divine chastening. Now we'll back up. We'll read. I said verse 12, but I actually meant chapter 12, verse 11. We'll back up to verse 10 again. For they indeed, meaning human fathers, for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he, God, our heavenly father, he chastens for our profit that without objective in mind that we may be partakers of his holiness. It's it's intended to have a purpose. Now verse 11, talking about is chastening pleasant. Now no chastening, not some, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. But what is it instead but painful? It's painful. It's not a pleasant process. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. What is the purpose of chastening? Training. What is another word for training? Correction. What is the objective in all of that? Spiritual growth, spiritual benefit, that we would be able to have an outcome in our lives that would be in keeping with God's purpose for our lives, that we would live set apart or right lives. Not because there's a focus of that, but that's the focus of getting our gaze and our dependence back on the Lord. As we're trusting him, enjoying him, depending on him, then he yields fruit. He produces fruit in our lives. That fruit is right fruit because God can't produce anything but right fruit. And so if you want righteousness or right thinking and right behavior in your life, it starts with being willing to be sensitive to God's discipline, chastening, correction in your life. It takes, again, many different forms, but it all has the same outcome in mind. It's not pleasant, but it's productive. Not pleasant, but productive. Now we see these, this last section. David, now he seeks, he asks the Lord to put an end to his discipline or chastening. He refocuses on the Lord. He asks for deliverance. But now in these last verse, he, verses, he seeks restoration with the Lord. Let's read verse 12. Verse 12, hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I 
I am currently, we have to insert that word, I am currently a stranger with you. It's like I'm a sojourner, meaning I have no real home or, or feel like I have a place of, a sense of being, of, of belonging. As all my fathers were, that's the way they lived life on earth. They lived in tents and traveled around without any sense that they had a home. Verse 13, and that's what he's saying he feels like as he's being chastened by the Lord. Verse 13, remove your gaze from me that I may regain strength before I go away and am no more. Now, again, you got to pull some of this out of this, but we're talking about restoration. When David pleads with the Lord to hear him, he doesn't mean that God never didn't hear him all along. What he's saying is, respond favorably to my request. I'm not saying hear as in just take it in, but hear it in the sense of answer my prayer. What was my prayer? His prayer is that the Lord would having shown him his frailty, having humbled him, that the Lord would now restore him, that the divine chastening could have an end to it. See, David associates a lack of intervention by God as God has been chastening, chastening him as synonymous with or similar to being treated like a stranger. That's what he's talking about in the second part of verse 12 when he says, for I am a stranger with you. Is David a stranger with God? The answer is no. While he's separated from God in the sense of his thinking had been separated from God where, where he's dealing with or working through his iniquity in his life, his failures and his transgressions from, again, verses 7 through 11, in that time period, there isn't unity, there isn't intimate fellowship with God while we're actively doing our own thing. That's why David is so interested in being made aware of or humbled so that he can get his focus in the right place and he can come back to a place of being in a restored right relationship with God. Practically, we're not talking about positional restoration here. And so then you see this phrase, remove your gaze from me, and that just refers to the ending of divine chastening as if, you know, God, God by directing his gaze at me, he's directing his discipline at me. David wouldn't be praying in the context of restoration for God to look away from him if he wasn't referring to God looking toward him with a posture of a parent who is writing the thinking of his parent through, or his child through correction. He's saying, turn, turn your focus away from that aspect now, God, because I've learned what it is that you want me to learn because you've shown me my frailty again. You've put me back in my place, so to speak, so I have the right posture and the right thinking. And then it ends with describing restoration with the phrase that I may regain my strength, that I can have that relationship back with you. Now, I don't believe he's talking about physical, the physical realm. I believe he's focused on the spiritual realm. But it is true that chastening, especially in the context of the Mosaic Covenant, though I don't want to get into that a lot, there could, it could have a physical aspect to it. We talked about how some people believe that's what Psalm 38 is talking about. I'm not one of them, but some people believe that. But I actually think when he says, I re regain my strength, he's talking about a right relationship with God. I may be restored back into a right relationship with you. So as we think about this, this psalm, the takeaway for me is learning humility through discipline. And we mentioned or talked about this idea that failure or sin, it's caused first and foremost by an attitude of pride. And when you think about that, children who are on the wrong track, when they're operating in pride, when they're not willing to take correction or direction, I, I should say direction, 
When they're not willing to take direction, that's a manifestation of a sense of, I do it, I've got this, I know more than you know. That's what a child is really thinking when they won't take direction from you as a parent. And so at times, when that attitude of pride is manifesting itself in children's life, children's, children who are on that wrong track, they need discipline. They need discipline. And believers are God's children, and he undertakes to correct us. And that was happening here in David's life. Now, correction is intended to produce changed thinking, and if you're following this train of thought, this flow of thought, changed thinking or proper thinking, it's always characterized by humility. So that's what ultimately the process is here. Pride gets us off track, puts too high a view of self, takes the focus of, in terms of preeminence in our lives off of God, puts it on ourselves. That then requires or leads us to need correction from God. God being our heavenly father, he undertakes, he promises, he's faithful to correct us. The correction is intended to produce changed thinking. Corrected or positive or proper thinking always is characterized by humility. And humility is an attitude then that God can use. Humility is an attitude that God can use. Now, learning humility through discipline, what caused it? Pride, what's the opposite of pride? Humility, you see that the whole thing kind of comes full circle. It starts with pride and it ends with humility. It, it begins with the problem being pride and the corrective measure or the solution to that is humility. So that's how we got our title tonight, Learning Humility Through Discipline. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we could gather together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these truths. Pray that we would see that you need to remind us how frail we really are, that at times in our lives where we're focused on self, where we're doing our own thing, where we're trusting in self, that we would realize that we need to be reminded of how much we really need to depend on you and how you need to always be the focus, and that thinking too highly of ourselves is our probably our number one issue to deal with. Pray that we'd be sensitive to our tendency to do that and we'd be looking